Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Reformed Meditations. I'm Lee, and I'm so happy to be back with you again this week. A little bit of a later episode. I've had a busy week, but I'm really excited to talk about the next theophany in our series. Uh, and it's Daniel's part of Daniel's vision from chapter 7 of Daniel. This is, I say this every time, but this is a little different than what we've done before. All of these uh, visions uh, that we've um, studied so far um, have their own unique uh, purpose, their own unique settings, unique content and message given to a particular person. But all the ones that we've looked at up to this point have been face-to-face encounters in real time, in a in a real, I shouldn't say real place, in a particular place where God has stood before someone and delivered a message. In this theophany, and also the next one, spoiler alert, the last two that I'm going to cover in this series, then we'll move on to something else. This is a vision. Uh, This is a night vision. That's what Daniel calls it. He was seeing prophetically a message from God in his dream. And actually a, a great amount of the book of Daniel comes from his dreams, from his visions in the night. We're going to an early part of his vision, uh, sort of the the setup, so to speak, for the vision that's to come. And uh, we get an introduction to the Ancient of Days, and one like a son of man. So I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So let's go ahead and dive into it. But before we dive into it, uh, I wanted to let you know there is a special announcement that I'm going to get to at the end of the episode. But um, of course, in all things, uh, the word comes first. So we're going to we're going to meditate on this text together. Uh, hopefully, learn something, and then I'll I'll give you a a fun announcement and challenge at the end of the episode. So make sure you stay tuned uh, for all of that. Okay, um, without any further ado, Daniel 7, we're actually, we're going to start in verses not in verse 9 and go through verse 14, but he, a little bit of setup. So at the start of Daniel 7, he has a vision of four beasts. And I don't, I don't, I'm not going to read all of it. It kind of opens up its own can of worms. Um, I'm not going to get um, eschatological here. We're talking about theophanies. We're not talking about um, end time prophecies or anything like that. That is a great topic maybe for another time if that's what folks would like to, to hear about or talk about. But um, that's not what I'm, I'm into right now uh, for this episode. But suffice it to say, he sees four great beasts. They're typically described as four kingdoms. I, I would say that's probably right. And there's one who has a horn, the fourth beast. Uh, verse 7 says, uh, Behold, fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had a large and it had large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of the beast with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that was that were before, and it had ten horns. 
While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. The reason I want to bring that up is because uh, that beast and that horn particularly are going to factor into these uh, verses we're going to talk about. So understand there's a whole can of worms uh, to be opened by the beasts uh, that are mentioned here, but that's really kind of outside our, our purview for this. But I just didn't want to blindside anybody with the reference to the little horn. Um, okay, truly with no more further ado, uh, Daniel 7, starting in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here ends the reading. All right, so we have uh, a double whammy of a theophany here because we're seeing the Ancient of Days and we're seeing one like the Son of Man. And for those of us who are relatively well-versed in, in, in the church and in the, the different names uh, that we have for God, uh, those titles, Ancient of Days and Son of Man, uh, should pop out to us pretty immediately. Um, we'll start with the, the Ancient of Days. Um, this would be God the Father, the Judge, um, this is separate from the Son of Man, who would be the Son. Uh, it's so funny, you know, you, we like to refer to Christ as the Son of God, right? And to us, that's a, a name denoting divinity, right? It says God in it, of course. He's the Son of God. But in the Jewish mind, it's so interesting. Son of God denotes humanity. Why? Because uh, that is associated with uh, Davidic kingship, that kings in the line of David are sons of God, like they're, they're blessed uh, in that way. So good human rulers were thought of as sons of God, and this divine figure here, the second person of the Trinity, is known as the Son of Man. And Jesus himself makes that connection on many, many, many occasions in the Gospels. So Son of Man speaks to his divinity, whereas Son of God speaks to his humanity. It's kind of interesting and backwards to the way we think, but um, still an interesting side point and important to remember. So we have God the Father, the Judge here, and we have some 
some as the beasts were described with symbolic language, we have some symbolic language too for uh, God the Judge. Um, he takes his seat. He's so he's on a throne. Uh, even human judges take seats in our time. You know, we we can see we all know where the court in the courtroom where the judge sits. Um, but at the at that time, uh, judges would take a seat at the gate of the city. And there are actual stoops that are factored into the walls uh, where it was known plainly if you walked by and the seat was empty, you knew whose seat that was and you knew you didn't sit down there. That was for the judge or the ruler or whoever it was who was important enough to hear cases uh, when people were gathered. So the judge of judges, the Holy One, takes his seat in heaven, in uh, his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. So white, obviously, is a is a symbol, especially in Scripture, but even to us, of purity. But what's interesting to me is that not only does he have white clothes, so he is, um, he's pure. He's completely pure. Um, this this white hair as well uh, is a sign of not only uh, wisdom. Um, typically in Scripture, men with white hair were seen as uh, wise elders. Uh, and this is, of course, this is God, the elder of elders. Like, he has no beginning. He is uncreated. He is the one who creates. So he is before all things. Uh, he has no beginning. He has no end. So if he were to have hair, then white hair would certainly be correct. Um, now, again, this is what we call anthropomorphic language, where we are ascribing human attributes, human appearance to one who does not properly have a body, right? God the Father does not have a body. The Holy Spirit does not have a body, even though we we typically think of the Holy Spirit, if we were to give him a symbol, I don't know, it's usually, you know, the dove, a dove with an olive branch or something like that. Remember, the Holy Spirit descended on Christ as a dove at his baptism. So these are these are helpful images for us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what God looks like. But this this is helpful for us because this so clearly shows the difference between the Father and the Son. And they're both equally divine. They're both of the same essence with the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, of one substance, um, three persons in one. But they're not the same person. You know, we're not Unitarians, we're Trinitarians. Uh and that's the right thing to believe. Um, so we see God the Father is separate from God the Son, and they appear differently. Uh, so we have God the, the Father on his judge's throne, where he belongs, uh, with, with the white clothing, the white hair, and his throne is ablaze with flames. And, and you know, kind of keep a mental note of these descriptions of of the throne room. Uh, that's going to be helpful for uh, our next theophany 
study. It's, it's a blaze with flames. We're talking about the justice of God here. Uh, he is the only one who has the right to cast people into the flames. He is the one who has the right to be the judge of all people. Why? Because of that purity, because of that holiness, because of that uncreatedness, the sinlessness, the perfection. He is the judge of all. Uh, he is not a sinner like us. He is not a man like us. We are fallen. He is the one that we hate by our very nature. Um, we, even human judges, they're just sitting in a normal seat. They're on a normal throne made of wood or stone or whatever material. The judge, with a capital T and a capital J, sits on a throne that's ablaze with flames, and it has wheels that were a burning fire. Uh, so this is unlike any other judge's throne. And it's interesting that this mention of the wheels, because the beings that appeared to Ezekiel in his visions also came with wheels. So this is part of that mystery. I don't know if that is a, a common thing, uh, a necessary aspect of being before the presence of God and the, the presence of these wheels, that that is a lot of mystery, and I we don't have the time to figure all that out. I'm pretty sure that has not been figured out. Uh, it's one of those great mysteries that uh, we will see for ourselves uh, one day, those of us who are in Christ and uh, will go on uh, to spend eternity with Him, these things will become normal to us. <laughs> but as we are now, big mystery, big mystery. Uh, so so he's on a, a blazing throne in a in a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Um, I, I have to believe that that has to be a reference to judgment. You know, judgments come from a throne. And we know the wages of sin is death. And fire, again, to speak symbolically, despite what we think today, fire is actually a symbol of judgment in the scripture. Um, it's a symbol of not only the separateness and holiness of God against sinners, but he he has the right to consign sinners to the fire. So we so then we see thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Um, that's he's again going with the judgment. That this is the nations standing before the judge. Um, which is appointed for for every every person who's ever lived, that there will be a time of judgment. So they're standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were opened. Now, what's interesting about these books? There's a reference to the books as well in Revelation twenty verse twelve. Um, these are, this would be a record of the deeds of mankind. Um, the books are opened. The records are meticulous, right? God sees all things. He notes all things. He remembers all things. Uh, he knows what they are. Uh, his plan has gone forth and will be completed as he intended. We actually get to see the use of this fire that goes out from the throne against the beast, in verse 11, 
the horn is going on saying uh, all these boastful, terrible things. And so the beast is not only slain, but its body is destroyed and given to the burning fire. So this fire, I, in my mind, as I'm picturing this, the way it's described, this fire is is issuing from the throne of God and completely destroying this blasphemous beast and its loud-mouthed horn. So we're seeing the justice of God being done practically before our eyes as we're considering this vision. So God means business. He's not withholding this fire. His plan is to release this fire of judgment upon those who deserve it, and that would be everyone who is not already covered in the blood of Christ. So this this beast, this kingdom, if you will, and its horn, which uh, in a lot of the prophetic books, a horn can be a reference to a king of such a nation. That's why we have um, beasts in several prophetic books with horns, um, because they're kingdoms with their kings, or empires with their Caesars, if you get my drift. As I said, I'm not, I'm not really going down this road. It's not important to what we're talking about today, but it is something to consider. Okay, so we've seen God the judge. We've seen his throne. We've seen his justice against uh, the beast, the fourth beast. Um, and now we're, we're going to see quite another character. Uh, we're going to see the Son of Man presented before the glory of the Father. Note in verse 13 where it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven. There are references to Christ ascending into the clouds uh, in the Gospels. Uh, I think the best example is Mark 14, 62. Um, Let me turn to it. Jesus even quotes this passage here. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further do we what further need do we have of witnesses? So Jesus is clearly identifying himself with the one like a son of man here from Daniel 7. Uh, one more reference uh, to, uh, to the clouds is, uh, of course, Revelation 1.7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So this detail of the clouds is one way to signify the Son of Man. Uh, So not only using the title Son of Man, but even just referencing coming with the clouds is so iconically Daniel 7.13 that it's shorthand for Christ's position as the Messiah. So he's one like a son of man. This is so different in appearance from God the Father, the judge. Um, He has an appearance uh, 
at least enough like a son of man, uh, enough like a human being to at least be referred to as like a son of man. But he's not exactly one, which, of course, we know Christ is a unique man, right? He is the God-man, simultaneously human and divine. Having two natures, uh, we we talk about the the hypostatic union, Um, he, he was born as a man, truly God, at the same time. Uh, what a profound mystery that is for us. So he's he's one like a son of man uh, to, to Daniel's eye when he's looking at this. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Okay, so he so this is a this is a presentation, right? So he's standing before God, but he's not standing before God as the nations or as this beast uh, that was annihilated here, uh, that was uh, thrown into the fire. He's standing before God for a blessing, the only man who can, right? Because he is God. He's divine. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is Christ. Furthermore, uh, as we're going to see here, um, he is the risen Christ. This is not pre-incarnate Jesus waiting to be born in the likeness of man. This is the ascended Christ. He's already gone to the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He's been raised for our justification and has ascended with the clouds. So he's come straight from meeting with the apostles, uh, as we see uh, testified to at the beginning of Acts, ascends into the clouds and goes straight to the throne room. And what happens? The only man for this ever to happen to, because he is no mere man, he's the God-man, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So I'm, I'm grateful to have gotten some help on this, uh, because as I was I was studying this on my own, I'm like, you know, these details here, these are details of Christ who has paid and purchased this kingdom from from the from the nations. You know, the only reason that the nations can flock to God the Father is by Christ, and so His receiving of dominion, glory, and a kingdom comes after. He's gone to the cross and taken up his life again. So big thanks not only to uh, John Calvin's commentary on this, but to to my own pastors, Dana Kidder and Ben Bean, for uh, for discussing this with me. And Dana even sent me this great quote from uh, John Gill. It says, and there was given him dominion and glory in a kingdom that is a large, powerful, and glorious kingdom. Not but that he had a kingdom before, but now it will be more extensive and appear in greater glory. This will be fulfilled when the kingdoms of this world shall become his, and all nations shall serve and worship him. Revelation 11.15 as follows, that all all people, nations, and languages should serve him, embrace his gospel, submit to his ordinances, 
serve and worship him in every religious duty, every people of all nations and of every language under heaven, which will be the case when the everlasting gospel will be preached to them with all success. Revelation 14.6 His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall never have an end, as the rest of the monarchies, signified by the four beasts, have had or will have. Spot on. It's hard to beat Gil. I'll just say that. (laughs) Thanks for that quote, Dana. That really paints uh, the picture better than I could have. That's for sure. That's always a, a huge help. So thank you very much for... Um, looking at that with me and confirming what I was seeing in there, um, we can say this is the risen Christ. This is the outcome of the covenant of redemption that was agreed to within the Trinity before the world began, that Christ would come to earth, born in the likeness of man, to live a righteous life, die a death he did not deserve in order to ransom a people for his own possession, to purchase with his own blood a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Daniel uh, is fortunate to see this happen before Christ had even been born to the Virgin Mary. It's amazing. It's so crystal clear here what... Daniel's seeing, and yet so many were, were blinded to it. Um, the people of, of Jesus' own day were complicit in absolute willing blindness. Um, the way had already been laid out to see that Christ would be the Messiah and what his work would be. He would be no mere human king. Uh, he would not be sitting on a throne of the kingdom of Israel. No, he it's far more than that. He had a far greater mission than simply ruling a human nation. He has glory, glory that no human king could ever have because he's divine. He was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And those of us who are in Christ, who have repented of our sins and believed in him, are in that kingdom. As I said, the kingdom of priests in a holy nation that was promised all the way back uh, in Exodus has finally come to fruition in Christ, that um, by his blood, he has made a holy people for himself. He's removed our sins, he took them on the cross with him, and he's given his righteousness to us. And for what purpose? That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And he's no mere human king, like I said, because his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, right? We're getting doubly emphasized here. Uh, An everlasting dominion means it will not pass away. But just to make sure that we're absolutely clear, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You know, even the gates of hell cannot stand against the kingdom of Christ. No one has the ability to snuff out Christ's kingdom. He bought it with his with his blood. He preserves it. He intercedes on behalf of his people and all to the glory of God and to the help of his people. Uh, Psalm 110 
gives us another look at this aspect of of Christ's authority and ministry, even if we'd like to call it that. Psalm 110. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Why not? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the days of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is, this is a, a description of the very same scene. Christ received this glory, this dominion, and what, and what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we confess when we say the Apostles' Creed. And he rules from that place, and he rules even now. Again, it's a, it's, he has an, a never-ending kingdom. No one will be able to take the throne from him or remove the scepter from him. Uh, he will only rule for eternity. That's pretty great. <laughs> you know, I don't want to undersell this or anything, but this is pretty great. Uh, no other king has ever had a kingdom like this because this is a holy kingdom. This is a kingdom of priests. This is not uh, an empire built by the, the work of an army or the political genius of, of an emperor or um, a bloodthirsty campaigns across entire continents, as the history of humanity has said, this has been God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, putting aside all of his glory to be born as a man, and for what purpose? To give his life, to shed his blood, to die a horrible, not a horribly painful death, to take the wrath of the Father against sin for his entire kingdom at once, and then to take up his life again as a promise that his people will also be resurrected, and then to ascend to heaven and be seated uh, they call that the session. He takes his place at the right hand of his father, and now we can call him our father as well, and Christ, our brother and our savior. And now, in that exalted place, he rules the nations and intercedes for his people. So that's a, a, a very glorious thing, uh, something that's really important for us to remember, uh, especially in uh, times of trial or uncertainty, uh, it's a great encouragement, a great reminder to us that things aren't spinning out wildly by happenstance uh, or by chance or luck or karma or 
whatever the world wants to call uh, the way the world turns in the events of the world, um, it's all playing out under the hand of the king. And his plan cannot be thwarted. His kingdom cannot be defeated or subsumed into some man's empire that he wishes to to create. Christ is king. The Father is the judge. And in this strange (laughs) and uh, difficult book that Daniel is, we get this fairly concrete vision of who exactly we're talking about. Yes, you know, it's going to to spin out into some other prophecies and things that Christians continue to debate about today, but there is no debate about this, that, that our God is in heaven, that Yahweh is on the side of his people, and that God is a holy judge who does not show favoritism, who judges based on his hatred of sin and his love for his son and those who wear his righteousness, who've been given his righteousness. And we see the goodness and holiness and authority and glory of one like the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who ascended and sits bodily at the right hand of the Father right now and will continue until all his enemies are under his feet. That's a great theophany. (laughs) I love this passage. Uh, If anybody has questions or comments, you really should reach out and we can talk, uh, maybe debate a little bit, or just encourage each other uh, with the knowledge of the sovereignty of God and his goodness and his justice and the beauty of the gospel. Okay, a little announcement. I am doing some giveaways soon. I've got a lot of books on my shelf, and I want to give them away. I have one giveaway that I'm starting right now, and it's just for listeners of the podcast. So you're hearing about it for the first time as you're listening to it now. I have a copy of John MacArthur's book, A Year of Prayer. It was a book he was hesitant about because... It's an entire year of his pulpit prayers at Grace Community Church. His children actually compiled it uh, somewhat against his wishes, and um, but he eventually gave his blessing to it, and it went to press, and it is very good. Uh, it would make an excellent devotional, um, and I want to give it to somebody. So here's here's how you'll get it. I'm going to post a picture of the book in the show notes. Here's what I would ask you to do. As you're listening and as you hear this, take a screenshot of your of your podcast app, whatever you use to listen to the show. Take a screenshot while you're listening to the episode and uh, tweet and tag Ref Meditations on Twitter. Uh, or you can post it on Facebook and just use the hashtag Reformed Meditations. I'll find it. And I will enter you in the contest to win this copy of A Year of Prayer by John MacArthur. So I'll give it a, a couple weeks. I'll do another reminder on the next episode. And then uh, I'll announce the winner 
uh, both online and on the podcast, and then and then we'll get in touch. Uh, whoever wins, uh, you can send me your uh, shipping address, and I'll get this book out to you, and and maybe with some stationary related goodies. There's always got to be goodies, so. Uh, that's the giveaway. Should be fun. And keep an eye out on social media for some upcoming giveaways soon. Um, all right. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. I hope this has been a good use of your time. Uh, if you want to get in touch, as I've already said, I'm on Twitter at Ref Meditations. You can also email me directly, reformedmeditations at gmail.com. Love to hear any comments or questions or suggestions or disagreements that you may have. Uh, just be, it's always fun to get some feedback. So uh, drop me a line. I'd love to talk to you. And uh, thank you very much for listening. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm-hmm.